Certainly, again, how blessed we are to be able to come together on an occasion, a time like this one, the first day of the week, with the characteristic of joy, excitedness in our heart, to think of just how blessed we are by the great hand of the God of heaven. This evening, perhaps, as we prepare to consider a lesson entitled Slothfulness, perhaps we can at least give some thought to uh, the directory that we've just completed today, the pictures, the photographer has been with us, and certainly we'll look forward in the weeks ahead to the completing of that, but it would not be in order or out of order either to at least make note if you know of someone who for reasons perhaps beyond their control or otherwise were not able to have their picture taken. If you just let myself know or one of the elders, we perhaps can get a picture of them made and then also have it submitted in time to have it included in our directory. So if you know someone who might be in that situation, uh, please bring that person's name again to myself. It'll be just fine. And we can try to collate that and get those pictures made. Let me again express thanks to Brother Jeff for the lesson of last Sunday evening. Thanks to him for filling in for me and delivering that very powerful lesson on the gods of Egypt and the characteristics of the plagues that ring so loudly and clearly in the book of Exodus. And in fact, on the Sunday morning occasions, as we continue to study that book, we'll have a frequent opportunity to revisit some of the things that Jeff shared with us. Tonight, if you'd like to revisit the book of Proverbs, we will be looking at a number of passages in that book. So if you might notice in chapter 18, verse 9 is what was read earlier for us. But if you want to keep your finger on that position, we'll then have easy time to look at some of the other passages found in that book of Proverbs that touch the subject of slothfulness. Isn't it amazing to consider the far-reaching aspects of what God has revealed for us in His Word? He literally leaves no aspect of our life untouched. The principles of Christianity, the things revealed in His Word, in fact, provide the complete guidance for every aspect of our life, be it those matters involving inanimate things like the way in which we work, but also the animate matters in which we deal with other people. And we operate or at least touch their lives in the way that God has commanded and that He finds pleasing. As we consider one of the ways that touches both of those characteristics, it really has to do with slothfulness. As often we appreciate the positive and enriching way that God's Word touches our lives, encouraging us to do certain things, just as certainly He also, in fact, discourages us doing other things, and in fact, even forbids it on some and various and sundry occasions. The Christian life should be one of productivity, it should be one of joy. It should be one in which the talents, skills, and capabilities that God has so wondrously bequeathed to us can be used not only for the betterment of self, but certainly for the improvement and encouragement and productivity as it well as, it well as expressed toward others. Tonight, as one considers slothfulness, that again is a word that is not so often heard perhaps today, but it is one that is used quite often in the Word of God. As we'll see tonight, let's begin by defining it, asking very critically what it means to discuss slothfulness, and then to see, in fact, where that may lead us as we look in many instances at the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Likely, if we've heard that word at all, we know roughly speaking what it means. To speak about slothfulness is to appreciate a characterization which is really a disinclination to work or to exert oneself. To put that differently, this matter of slothfulness means to be indolent 
or to be lazy. Now notice, as we give some thought to that definition, we really are discussing a very practical matter, aren't we? That touches me, and it also is one that each of us within the sound of my voice can consider. A disinclination to work. It's not that I can't, it's that I choose not to. It's not that there are means that forbid me to do so, but by the choice of my laziness, I choose not to do so. This matter of discussing it in that, mean, in that manner then leads us to note the closeness to that word sluggard, which do, is also that which occurs pretty often in the Word of God. The very name that is used for that word gives some indication, it would seem, about its pronunciation and the type of meaning that goes along with it. To speak about a sluggard is to really speak about a habitually lazy person. That really is the definition of such, a habitually, somewhat continuously, constantly lazy individual. So far with these two terms, both sluggard and slothfulness, we clearly are in fact pointing our attention toward this direction of am I lazy? What does the Bible say about that? Does God condemn it? What does He say in essence about those that would fit in that category and what might be God's disposition toward it? I would submit to you that there is so much said about it, we'll try to divide it into two large categories and seek to look at it in a very clear and concise fashion. As we begin, we might certainly note, though, the comments near the bottom of that slide, for I do want it to be clearly understood some things that we are not saying, some things that do not fall beneath the discussion of the lesson tonight. First of all, with regard to those who are legitimately in need, perhaps they do not work for reasons beyond their control and they find themselves in physical need. We are not discussing any such situation as that. For notice, slothfulness is not the situation described by that, by that uh, circumstance. By the same token, notice in the very bottom, we are not at all making any statement of condemnation about proper rest. Even the Son of God Himself, we might remember, on occasion found opportunity to take rest. The body needs it, the mind needs it for spiritual recharging. We are thus not condemning in any way a vacation or anything along that line. But what we are asking is honestly and fairly, what does God say about slothfulness, about laziness, about this disinclination to exert oneself on behalf of the charges and duties that God has given and that He has delivered. So with those preliminary thoughts uttered and made, let's turn and notice then some thoughts in the Word of God about the matter of slothfulness as well as this matter of the sluggard. What might we say about God's disposition toward work, about healthy, productive, active activity that you and I would recognize as work. There might be those under the impression that work basically came as a result of sin, that in some way or another it was a punishment that God gave as a result of sin. But it wasn't so. For after all, we find the disposition of work occurring before the fall in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2 verse 15, on that occasion, God, in fact, gave Adam and Eve some duties with respect to the garden. He expressly said they were to dress it and to keep it. Now notice, that's one chapter before the time when they partook of the forbidden fruit. 
Here was productive activity that they were supposed to engage in here as early as Genesis chapter 2, to dress the garden and to keep it. Hence, we see that work is not a nasty, dirty, ungodly thing. Work is, in fact, a fruitful thing in the very confine of the providential will and character of what God has made. It was His will that Adam and Eve be productively engaged in the dressing and in the keeping of the Garden of Eden. But in addition to that thought, in Exodus 23, verse number 12, as we look at the very nature of the law of Moses, we in fact hinted at something near to this this morning, but notice this is another passage. That one we noted then was in Exodus 20. Now in Exodus 23, again as he made note of the character of the Sabbath and the commandment regarding it, God said, six days are you to work. But that one day, the Sabbath, you are not to work, for it is an abomination of the, unto the Lord to do so. Notice what was inherent in that statement. Six days are allowed to work. Six days of opportunity to productively engage oneself in the responsibilities, duties, challenges, and charges that God has provided. Thus we see God allowed plenty of opportunity, did He not, for them to work. It seems as though it was a critical part of the Old Testament, wasn't it? Later in the book of Nehemiah, we do also remember that God on that occasion, in fact, with respect to the same commandment, in fact, rebuked those individuals because they were doing on the Sabbath what God had here forbade. Those kinds of thoughts lead us to notice that the commandment of the Sabbath was a serious one for that Old Testament economy. And furthermore, that the matter of work was also a serious thing to be appreciated. But notice that this thought, it would seem, continues unabated in many regards throughout the sacred scriptures. Let us turn our attention for a moment till today. In Ephesians 4 verse 28, found again near the end of that fourth chapter of the Ephesian letter, Paul rather simply but yet profoundly said, Let him that stole steal no more. Rather let him work with his hands the thing that is good that he may give to him that needeth. Notice Paul had a serious inclination toward encouraging work on the part of brethren in Ephesus. Not that they were to take from others by thievery, stealing, or other such wise, but rather you labor with your hands. And isn't it interesting, the reason for it, that you may be able to give to those who are in need. His first thought was not to support self in the sense of keeping it all for yourself, but rather to have an eye and a consideration for those who really are in need. But notice furthermore in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, we find a rather interesting passage that touches again the power and majesty of our day for on that occasion, Paul wrote, And that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. The church at Thessalonica, as a more extended study would quickly reveal, had some rather serious misgivings and misconceptions about the second coming of Christ. One of those misconceptions, it seems, was sufficiently serious that... In some instances, they proceeded to stop their working. They thought the second coming was that close. So they were not working, just sitting around waiting for the second coming of Christ. 
Paul had to correct that on at least three occasions in the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And here he said, you need to get busy. As we gave you commandment, let everyone work with his hands doing the business that God has delivered and that God has given. It was in the second chapter of Second Thessalonians. He pointed out that many things must transpire prior to the, coming, the second coming of Christ. Remember the revelation of the man of sin, the character of what the descriptions of him were. As you and I think about that, the man of sin has long since come, and so the second coming could occur at any moment. However, note again the injunction to them, let everyone work with his hands. As if that particular text weren't sufficient for our consideration, look at 2 Thessalonians 3. In the closing chapter of that letter, perhaps one of the most familiar passages in 2 Thessalonians, it reads like this. I'll begin reading in verse number 8. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 8. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that, if any would not work, neither should he eat. Paul used himself as exhibit A, didn't he? He said, when we were amongst you, we had the right, and it would have been entirely within the confines of the will of God to expect you to provide for us as we were in fact, servants to God in the proclamation of truth. But we did not do that. Rather, we worked day and night, not only carrying out the duties of the gospel, but laboring ourselves physically so that we would not be chargeable to you. For this is what we said, if any would not work, neither let him eat. That's rather straightforward and rather plain, isn't it? Here this congregation in Thessalonica needed these rather challenging words so that they would understand the vitality and the importance of work and also the inappropriateness of slothfulness, the inappropriateness of being a sluggard. Perhaps one final passage in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. As Paul again writing to that young son in the faith, Timothy, he pointed out very clearly to him that if any provide not for his own... He hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The importance of providing for one's own, physically meeting their needs, the characteristics of those matters in life which suffice to provide for the body, he said, let each provide for his own. Those matters challenge us today with seeing, do we not? The importance of work and also the error of slothfulness, laziness, indolence, Perhaps those ideas bring us to note the following thought on that slide. It seems already that industriousness, the interest in performing work in a physical way, are good characteristics to have to meet the characteristics of the Bible. It is now that we can turn to the Old Testament and see if we can build a structure that God would have us to build upon this foundation that we have laid. It is in that matter. Let's revisit Proverbs, and let's see what we're able to appreciate about sluggardness, slothfulness, and its opposite, industriousness and the character of productive work in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. In fact, if we may prelude our description with these words, 
we shall find shortly that in fact not only does God encourage such, He condemns this matter of slothfulness and laziness, and He encourages industriousness. Proper work in things that are good, things that are noble, to bring about the good things that God would have in both the spiritual realm and as well as in the physical one. It is with that idea in mind, I would invite your attention to look with me at some characteristics that accompany slothfulness. If one thinks of slothfulness according to the Bible, what as well does that produce? What as well does that bring? Here's our first one. In Proverbs chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse number 6. And this too is likely a text that has some familiarity, especially the analogy that the inspired writer uses. Verse number 6 of Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? And when wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man." In that opening passage, we have seen the inspired writer use the ant. Perhaps we shouldn't say the lowly ant. It may be a small creature, but what a great lesson we're able to learn merely by the nature of the way the ant behaves, the conduct of what they do. For notice the industriousness of an ant. The preparation made for the coming time of winter, the gathering together in time of opportunity so that there will be no, no need when the time later in the year arrives. And notice with me as he points out somewhat interestingly, in verses 6 and 7 he says, Be wise. The implication being if we thus do not follow that example and we are lazy and slothful and indolent and a slugger, then we are acting foolishly. We're not acting with good sense. We're not acting in light of what is going to be the case in the future. There's going to be a time of need. We've made no preparation due to our laziness. Notice also in the book of Proverbs, that opening lesson, comparison to the ant, only leads us to see this one as well. In Proverbs 13, verse 4, somewhat later in the book, Solomon has these words to say, The soul of the slugger desireth, and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Notice with me again, this sluggard, this slothful one, comes in a time of want, and he doesn't have because he made not the adequate preparation. His laziness, in fact, led him to be slothful. In Proverbs 19, notice verse 14 with me. Verses 14 and 15. House and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. What kind of soul is the one that suffers hunger? What kind of person? It's the slothful one. It's the idle one. The one who has the opportunity and the capability to labor, but chooses not to do so. Our first lesson then we've seen as far as characteristics of slothfulness, it leads to poverty and want. When those could have been satisfied, this has led to them not being satisfied. 
But notice what else comes along with slothfulness. What other characteristic follows? Slothfulness thinks only of the moment, and in that sense is greatly unwise. In Proverbs 10, let's begin reading in verse number 4. Proverbs chapter 10, beginning in verse 4. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He, gathereth, he that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. Blessings are upon the head of the just, but violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Might we pause and ask, which son was the wise one? The one that labored in summer to make provision. But which one was described as being unwise? Which one in verses 4 and 5 was described as foolish? In particular, he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causes shame. We already have seen yet another lesson. This matter of slothfulness thinks about the moment in its laziness, thinking about the pleasure or perhaps not actively involved in work, but gives no thought to what's going to happen when the time of that need arises. Can't one just automatically think about how easy that comes about? The funds are spent. The matter of want comes about, but then there's nothing laid up to partake of. The slothfulness, the characteristics of the sluggard have caused him not only to be in want, but by the fact he gave no thought to the future, he made no preparation for it. Those two characteristics perhaps are joined so easily by the third one. For because of this latter one, the third one seems to directly follow. The person that's a sluggard then is dependent on somebody else. He has refused to labor for himself, and so someone else has to provide for the physical needs. That, of course, is stated in the Word of God, though it seems to be so logically that which follows. Look with me, if you would, in Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. It's the one who is able to bear rule due to the activity, the ingenuity, the creativeness, the capability of labor that has allowed him to rise to the point that he has risen. However, he goes on to say, the slothful shall be under tribute. This person who hasn't provided, who has made no provision due to his laziness, will have to rely upon the tribute of another, under the tribute, if you please. That kind of thought, again, reminds us to some extent about the nature of what has come to be the case in our day. There certainly are many who take welfare and need it, and I'm sure all of us are happy to have it. But it does seem that abuse does run rampant. Perhaps we each know of individuals whom it would seem are able to work and whom it would seem are able to provide more so than they are. And yet it's a sadness when due to their slothfulness and their laziness, they are subject to that which provides or which is provided by yet another. You'll notice that so far three times God has condemned that rather abruptly. He's described it as foolishness. He's described it as lack of foresight. And he has also described it in this case as opposite to those who diligently labor with their hands. Yet in the fourth place, slothfulness is wasteful. That may seem a bit odd, 
But notice with me the passage found in Proverbs 18, verse number 9. The one that was read in our hearing a little earlier this evening. Proverbs 18, verse number 9. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. The one who is slothful in his work is a brother, close kin indeed to the one, in fact, who is a great waster. That word waster, in fact, means destroyer in the American Standard Translation. In fact, that's the way it's rendered on that occasion. Might we notice then that to be indolent, to be lazy, to be slothful, is in fact to do this. It is to waste the opportunities and privileges that God has so abundantly and richly given us. We are looking upon them and saying, I'm not interested in them. I'm going to sit back and take it easy in my laziness. That kind of thought only hastens us to look at Proverbs 24, verse 30. In the same book, the inspired writer wrote, I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles, had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well, and I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, yet a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth in thy want as an armed man. Isn't it interesting, the imagery of that passage? The inspired writer says, I have walked by the vineyard of this lazy man. Its wall was broken down. It was all grown up with thorns and nettles. It wasn't a productive vineyard, though it could have been. It could have been one to provide for himself and his family and perhaps many others as well. And yet, due to his indolence and laziness, that patch of ground is lying waste and the opportunities afforded have gone to wastefulness. That's a rather penetrating and profound consideration, isn't it? That if we're lazy, we are wasteful. We're wasting the opportunity God has given us to provide and the opportunity to be able to assist and to help others as well. Notice also in Ecclesiastes 10 verse 18, a rather similar passage in some ways written by the same gentleman, Ecclesiastes, written also by Solomon. In verse 18 it says, By much slothfulness the building decayeth. And through idleness of the hands, the house droppeth through. Again, the American Standard renders the closing portion of that verse, leaketh. That lazy man might well have a roof that leaks. Perhaps opportunity afforded itself to help, to ensure that that building and its structural rigidity would remain, and that it would be well prepared to last a long time. And yet, due to his slothfulness, the roof is leaking. The other things are falling through. And in fact, the house is decaying. You see, it's a wastefulness when you and I respond in laziness and do not do that which God would have us to do in good charge to what He has commanded. In addition to these things, might we notice quickly two others. In addition to these characteristics, we might also notice that in so many cases, we find that slothfulness is accompanied by excuses. That is to say, it finds close cousin to the giving of excuses for reasons as to why the labor was not done. Consider with me, if you would, in Proverbs 20, 
verse 4, as well as Proverbs 26, verse 13. Let's particularly consider the latter of those passages. Proverbs 26, beginning in verse 13. The slothful man saith, There is a lion in the way. A lion is in the streets. As the door turneth upon his hinges, so doth a slothful upon his bed. The slothful hideth his hand in his bosom. It grieveth him to bring it again to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. Isn't it interesting yet again to notice, especially verses 13 and 14, the slothful man says, there's a lion in the street. A pretty feeble excuse for not going out given the fact how often do we see lions in the street. We don't see lions in the street very often, do we? And yet the slothful is quick to say, what a feeble excuse he can present. There's no lion in the street. There's any number of things that he can come up with to get out of doing the work. And none of them are good reasons. For note the very next verse that seems to cast it in such vivid imagery. He says, as the door turneth upon its hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. Just like we can imagine a door so easily turning to and fro on its hinges, the slothful can find plenty of energy to turn on his bed. But he doesn't seem to find the energy by doing what he should, but rather he makes excuses. There's a line in the streets. That may seem on the one hand a bit humorous, but it would seem that that's the Holy Spirit's way of driving the point home to us. Excuses often accompany laziness, do they not? But then finally... Might we also notice that laziness does afford a rather powerful opportunity to do wrong. How often have you heard your dad say, or maybe your grandpa, or perhaps an uncle or a close friend, an idle mind is the devil's workshop? When you and I aren't constructively involved in something, what naturally seems to fill the void? It's not things that are constructive, it's things that are destructive and bad, and mean, and evil, and things that are ugly, and things that are not wholesome, and not sound. In fact, that's what Satan's game is, isn't it? If you and I can be brought to laziness, just like Jesus spoke of that man, who in fact had had the evil spirit cast out of him, what was the next thing the Lord mentioned? Notice the evil spirit came back, brought seven more worse than he, and thus occupied what formerly had been made clean. What was the problem? The man didn't fill the void of evil that was left by doing that which was good. Notice the opportunity thus for wrongdoing by virtue of the idleness and by virtue of the slothfulness. All of that challenges us to note rather powerfully that slothfulness in the physical realm is labeled amongst that which is foolish and sinful and evil. All these verses have challenged us to not allow ourselves to be slothful or to be a sluggard. That particularly was one aspect of tonight's lesson. Probably many things that challenged us anew and afresh with those ideas from the Word of God. But I thought we would also employ the latter part of our lesson to look at another aspect of slothfulness. You may have noted hinted, you may have noted it hinted at a few of the passages we've read. These passages have also at least opened the possibility of slothfulness in the spiritual realm, not just the physical. 
Could it be that you and I could be spiritually lazy, spiritually indolent, spiritually with a disinclination to work? I would submit in light of the Word of God, the answer must be yes, for let us look at a few passages that challenge us on slothfulness, even in the spiritual realm of consideration. Again, you might note with me, as we begin, let's do so in a similar way to the way in which we began the physical one. Now, just to rehearse with you what you saw, let me go back up a slide so that you can see it again before we go to the next one. We looked at some characteristics of physical slothfulness, and they read as follows. It led to poverty and to want. Secondly, it is that which thought only of the moment and not of the future. Thirdly, it caused one to be dependent upon the provision of others. Fourthly, it was categorized as wasteful. Fifthly, it was accompanied by excuses. And lastly, we noticed that it afforded the opportunity for doing that which was wrong. With those six things in mind, let's consider spiritual slothfulness. And let's look at them in an order that I hope will now look very familiar. First of all, spiritual slothfulness leads to poverty and to want spiritually. Notice with me the passage of Matthew 25, verse number 26. Found, of course, in the statement made by our Savior, Matthew 25, verse number 26. Jesus on that occasion said, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I not, have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it to him which, which hath ten talents. For every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. In this parable of the talents, the Lord spoke about the giving, as we well remember. One man was given five talents, one two talents, one one talent. And in the reckoning of it, we will appreciate that these represented the abilities, the capabilities of those individuals. To that one talent man, Jesus said, you slothful and wicked servant. Note the term, slothful. You lazy servant. You sluggard, you and in that language, notice he says, take from him that which he's been given and give it to somebody else. Thus, he found himself spiritually in great want. For on that day of judgment, he was bereft of the opportunity to enjoy heaven, wasn't he? You wicked and slothful servant, get out of my kingdom. Cast him into outer darkness. Note verse 30. Notice thus, if you and I are spiritually lazy, we are not in good company we shall come to find ourselves in want and in poverty because we are not diligent in the proclamation of the things God has provided. Spiritually, we are lazy. We must not be so and be pleasing to God. Note secondly, thinks only of the moment. In Paul's marvelous and rather powerful statement to the Philippians in Philippians 2 verse 12, if only we note the closing portion of that verse, Paul on that occasion said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What then are you and I working out in the spiritual realm? Salvation. Thus, if we refuse to labor, 
if we and us are lazy, we must have very little consideration for the distant matter of eternal salvation. We certainly must not be thinking intelligently and wisely about eternity. We certainly must not be giving proper heed to the nature of what will send us to hell or what will allow us into heaven. Thus, spiritual laziness is short-sighted. It does not think anything beyond the moment, perhaps of the pleasure that comes along with laziness. But notice the pleasures of sin are only for a season, aren't they? Hebrews 11.25 Perhaps in the next place, we might well notice, just as we noticed in the third place before, it causes one to be dependent on others. Note with me this time. It is the case that spiritual laziness will cause one to be spiritually dependent upon the instruction of others. And it would not be an overstatement herein to state, would it, that this is the problem as to why there's been so such denominationalism. Individuals won't study it for themselves. They sit at the feet of somebody else and base their eternal destiny on the hinging of what that man has said. But yet, what if he teaches wrong? And so many times they have. In our study, when we studied the Restoration Movement, we tried to look very clearly at the teaching of such men as Calvin and Wesley and a whole host of others. And though they were noble, and though they were sincere, were they scripturally correct? They were not in many very interesting cases. And yet what they have taught has been written into creeds and bought hook, line, and sinker. And because individuals are so ignorant of this book, they know far more about the creed books than they do about this one, they're damned because of it. That's a tragedy beyond description. If only one would not be spiritually slothful, spiritually lazy, but dig deeply into the rich truths of this book. Because notice some of these other passages. In Acts 17, verse 11, to that church at Berea, was it not true that of them Paul said, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched to the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Did they accept merely what was proclaimed by men? They did not. They heard it with an open mind, but then the litmus test was whether or not it was in the sacred text. I might submit that hasn't changed, has it? What I say is not inspired, unless I'm quoting, I suppose, verbatim from the Word of God. But rather, all of us must rely solely and completely Upon a thus saith the Lord, for only in that way can we make certain to not lapse into the great fault and danger that accompanies spiritual laziness. In 2 Timothy 2.15, to Timothy, Paul said, Study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here was a young preacher, a young man. We might ask, why didn't Paul work a miracle for that man and give him, if possible, some kind of supernatural knowledge? But yet Paul said, Timothy, study, give diligence, provide appropriate labor to that which is the bidding of God so that you can be a proper workman approved by God. That same word is given to you and me today, isn't it? Spiritual laziness has no room in the person desirous of pleasing God. God has provided in His Word all things that pertain unto life and godliness. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. 
Hence, we greatly err when we, due to laziness, sit at the feet and expect somebody else to do all the studying for us. It certainly thus is a good thing to study along with someone in a Bible study class, and as we do during times of sermons like this one. But as we study, may we try to encourage each other and lift one another up to a better and more complete knowledge of the Word of God. Notice fourthly, wastefulness. Indeed, as we consider it before it was wasteful to be physically slothful, what about spiritual slothfulness? In Luke 19, verse 26, which is a sister passage to the one we just read in Matthew 25, you'll notice there it again states in the parable of the pounds, take from him that hath the ten pounds and give, or rather from the one that had the one and give to the one with ten. Notice, wasteful, what talent and what ability and what capability you and I have been given if we don't use it appropriately in the nature of the service of God, the Scriptures teach us it's going to be taken away from us. We've wasted what God gave us. We might have been the one to reach that person, to do that work, to engage in that program, to lift high the banner of the church in a great work, and yet, due to our laziness, we wasted the opportunity. That again is a rather sobering thought, isn't it? And yet that wastefulness is set forth to us in not only that passage that I've referenced there, but also in the one again in Matthew 25, verses 27 to 29, if you'd like to read that one. Perhaps finally, might we notice the accompaniment of excuses. Doesn't it seem interesting that when you and I find ourselves in that period of disinclination to work, a time of laziness, one of the first things out of our mouth, but... We start those sentences with that little word, but, don't we? And then we proceed to give what in our mind is some excuse for why we couldn't do that work. I'd ask you to note with me in the Roman letter. In Romans 12, verse number 11, as Paul addressed the church in Rome, charging and giving them clear instruction with respect to matters like this, he began that verse in a familiar refrain, not slothful in business, Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not slothful in business. What business, Paul? The context of that chapter, he was describing the lovely and grand privilege that is ours as Christians in serving in the majesty of the kingdom of God, the church, and thus to share with others the beautiful nature of the gospel as well as laboring with the talents and abilities that God has provided Notice earlier he had said, beginning in verses 6 and 7, to those who have the gift of ministry, let him then be involved in that gift. To those who in fact are given to teaching, let him be busy so doing. Verse 8, to those that exhort, let them be busy in exhortation. Verse 8, on those that give, let them do it with simplicity. Furthermore, for those that rule, let them do it with diligence. And finally, to those that show mercy, let them do it with cheerfulness. It's clear, isn't it, the context is identifying work in the spiritual kingdom. And he says, not slothful in business. Isn't it true that as I stand before this audience, there's such a wealth of talent and opportunity here. Many things that all of you can do that I can't. However, 
The point is, all of us can work for the betterment of the kingdom, serving in those ways that are needful, because just as perhaps I can do something that you can't, you can do so many things that I can't. Our elders, many things they do that we are not able to, but yet we, serving beneath them, can accomplish many things that they have the vision to lead us to approach. Thus, not slothful in business. Notice furthermore in that same Roman letter, in chapter 2, verse 11, earlier in the book, we notice yet another statement that seems to fit so clearly into the discussion before us this evening. Verse 11 of Romans 2, in Paul's grand description about that day of judgment, I'll begin reading in verse number 8. But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. Thus, since God is no respecter of persons, there is a work we all can do. There's an old song that we used to sing quite a bit that there is a work that we all can do. May we thus have eyes wide open to see what that work may be and to give ourselves not slothfully but in great diligence to the pursuit of it.